Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind Howdy folks and welcome back to the podcast. Had I had the good fortune of going to the Harvard Business School, I probably would have been kicked out for my lack of marketing savvy. I just don't think I look at things, you know, quite in the cutthroat way that a lot of people do. Now, I will freely admit, I'll just tell you flat out, I started this podcast in hopes of increasing traffic over on my website and thereby potentially selling a couple of ebooks and videos. And, you know, I I've, think I've made that pretty clear over these many episodes. But then again, I, I look around my house and I have stacks of books, videos. I've got homespun videos. I've got Earl's book. I've got Oak publications, lots of stuff. I like all this stuff. And I think you probably have similar stacks growing at your your home, your little uh, cave where you practice. And I just think that, you know, anybody brave enough to put out instructional material for such a small niche as bluegrass music and similar things, I, I've got a lot of respect for those people. So I, I began to uh, converse with a few people who were doing kind of similar things that I'm doing. And it seems, uh, you know, counterintuitive to uh, bring somebody on the show who has a lot of instructional material, and I also do too. That seems to not make sense. That would be like Burger King having uh, Ronald McDonald on their, you know, on their website or something. But I look at it where, hey, we're all in this together. Everybody's, you know, trying to scratch out a living, and so, you know, I just kind of go back to what my mother told me about the golden rule. You know, do unto others. So today I am going to bring on. A really interesting guy. His name is Pete Martin. And I, I've watched some of his videos. You know, I go around and I, I see what other people are doing and I compare what they're doing to what I'm doing and, you know, try to get insights into how to teach and how to package your product and that kind of thing. And I ran across Pete Martin and I watched some of his videos. A very interesting guy. He's got the driest sense of humor. Um. But, you know, I, when I go to his website, I look at it and I say, I can relate to what this guy is up to. I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not close friends with Pete or anything. But, um, you know, I can just look at what he's doing and say, you know, that's a, it's very similar to what I've, I'm doing and have been doing. So I want to find out his story. So, you know, I get in touch with him. And uh, I think you'll find him very interesting because... He is a mandolinist and a fiddler. And so, you know, we kind of get into that, um, what is it like to be doing both and what are the differences? A lot of people always talk about the similarities between mandolin and fiddle, but there's, uh, you know, great differences too. And, you know, Pete is a, he has his bona fides, as they say, as a national adult fiddle champion. And he's been out there to Weezer, Idaho, and so on. He he lives out in Seattle, and uh, he's he's just been very very busy over the years. He's a 
He's almost an obsessive transcriber. And uh, I will put a link on the show notes page. Just go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to the Pete Martin interview, and you'll, you'll find a link over to his site where you can scope out all of his very interesting stuff. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this interview with fellow traveler. He's not really, you know, he plays bluegrass, but he's also a jazz and swing guy and Texas fiddle guy and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, there are overlapping musical circles. There's bluegrass, there's old time, there's swing, there's Texas. And the circles just keep on going, you know, all the way to whatever kind of music. They're all overlapping a little bit. And so Pete kind of lives in a in a couple of nearby overlapping circles. So uh, I, anyway, I hope you enjoy this little interview that I had with Pete. He's a, he's an interesting guy, and I didn't realize we actually knew a, knew, knew a few people, you know, mutually were acquainted with some people, even though he's way out there. I don't think he's ever been to Georgia. Anyway, maybe one day he'll come down here to the farm in Americas and we'll sit around and pick a while. But uh, take a listen to this interview with Pete Martin. And when the, when the show's over, you know, go over and scope out his site. He, he's a good dude. Anyway, here we go. Pete Martin. Okay, so I'm here with Pete Martin. And Pete, I believe, if I'm correct, you are out in Seattle right now. Is that right? Yes. All right. Well, Pete, I think a good place to get started with people who are not familiar with you is if you would take a minute and tell us. I think of you primarily as a mandolin player, but I also know you are a fiddle player. And, uh, you know, how did you get started playing music, I guess, is the question. Um, I, uh, my brother had a guitar when I was a little kid and took a couple lessons and wasn't any good at it. So that guitar was just kind of hanging around the house with nobody doing anything. So I picked it up and started playing it. And uh, a couple of his friends showed me a couple things. I took two or three lessons. Um, but I always had an ear to be able to figure stuff out. So whenever I'd hear things on recordings, I'd just sit down with the instrument and eventually I'd figure them out by just trial and error. So I've been playing guitar since I've been about maybe five or something. And uh, uh, then in college, I kind of got hit with the bluegrass bug because uh, a housemate had uh, this, the original Circle B Unbroken record. And so I got to hear Scruggs, Doc Watson, you know, Jimmy Martin and those folks. And so I, I, you know, when I heard Doc play Black Mountain Rag, I go, I bet I could play that. So I just <laughs> kind of started figuring it out and went from there. Then I was in a band that... Uh, that had, and I was playing uh, five-string banjo, bluegrass banjo at that time, so I was, uh, um, you know, I was in a, I got into a band that had a much better banjo player than me and already had another guitar player, and so the guitar player had a mandolin hanging on the wall. It's kind of funny, I just started playing melodic banjo, so I'd been working on Blackberry Blossom for like three <laughs> months and could finally play it through cleanly, and so picked up the mandolin and was able to play it almost the first time. 
without knowing anything about the instrument. And I, so I'm looking at the banjo going three months. I'm looking at the mandolin going, you know, 30 seconds. I think I'll use this one instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I had no idea you played the banjo because I, I don't think I've seen anything about that on your well, site. Well, I, I stopped playing banjo a number of years ago. Uh, I still play tenor banjo, but, uh, cause I play tenor guitar as well in the Texas style fiddle stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I quit playing bluegrass banjo pretty quickly after I'd moved to Seattle. I'm originally from Idaho, so I moved over to uh, Seattle in 79 when I was uh, 20. And uh, there was a whole bunch of really great bluegrass banjo players around here at that time. So, But there was only like one real good mandolin player, so I saw that that was my way to get to, get to be able to play with the best people in the scene here. So yeah. I started playing that that's interesting because i really got into mandolin i've described this in some previous episodes as it wasn't my first choice it was i was just banjo 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 that's all i wanted to do and the first when i went to college i wanted to put a little band together and the first guy that i met walked up to the dorm room and knocked on the door had a banjo in his hand i was like what else do you play and we put together a band and they didn't have a mandolin player so i said well i could probably you know i'll do mm -hmm. that and uh, you know i i ended up doing it for well still doing it and you know i suppose it, it doesn't really matter which instrument you ultimately end up with i mean i think you need to play the thing you want to play but in my my case mandolin was actually second choice sounds kind of like you yeah, um, I just found that, you know, from the first second I played it, it's the logic of the fingerboard just made huge sense to me that the guitar didn't. Yeah, so well, that's, there is that dreaded B string, and banjo yes. doesn't make any sense, you know. If, no. If, not no. like a mandolin. A mandolin is so well organized. Yeah, yeah. No, you can't play scales on a, on a five-string banjo in that that open G tuning or any of the other tunings they get, they use quite a bit. Yeah. Well, it's, don't it's tell, a, don't tell Bela Fleck that of course. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you have to be such an incredibly good player to even, to even play a fairly simple fiddle tune. Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. Well, now when did your fiddle playing take place? Was it after the well, mandolin I, or? Yeah. Yeah. It was a few years after the mandolin, uh, Growing up in Idaho, I'd heard of this National Fiddlers Contest for years, and so I finally went, and I had just started playing mandolin in that band when I went for the first time. And, of course, you know, when I went, here's Benny Thomason, here's Dick Barrett, here's Mark O'Connor, here's all these incredibly good Texas-style fiddlers. And I just was just completely enamored with that way of playing. So for a few years, I tried to do it on the mandolin, um, but I just found that there's so many things that the bow and the lack of frets can do that the mandolin can't do with those frets in the pick. Yeah, yeah. That I never was satisfied with how I was playing the tunes. And so finally I just dropped the mandolin for about 15 years and just picked up the fiddle. And wow. the reason I did that is because I kept trying to play the fiddle like I played the mandolin. And by that time I was already a fairly decent mandolin player. Um, and I just, uh, I just found that I had to, in order to really understand how the fiddle really worked, I had to totally drop out and really only about maybe 
15 years ago or so, I started playing the mandolin again with the fiddle. And it still took me about another five years to be able to switch quickly. So, uh, and by that, I mean, you have to have a totally different mindset playing the fiddle than playing the mandolin because of how the mechanics work different. Yeah, you choose very different sets of notes quite often, even in the same tune. Yeah, I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, oh, well, if you play mandolin, you know, you could play. And if you play fiddle because of the tuning and they are very, very similar in terms of scale and the notes, but they're completely different animals. I have always been just terrible on the fiddle. I really, before I even got into to mandolin, I mean, into banjo, I, the first instrument I really tried to play for three months was a fiddle because uh, my brother's friend had had one and I was able to borrow one. I got my hands on a fiddle and he moved away and I had to give the thing back. And thank God for that because <laughs> it was, I was terrible. And, you know, the the four or five tunes that I worked on back then that's still about all I can play on the fiddle, and I will not absolutely, for no amount of money, would I play the fiddle in public. I I just can't bring myself to torture humanity like that. It's horrible, I, and I think for me the reason I didn't go any any further with the fiddle was because I didn't like to hear myself play it. I just I hated what I was hearing. I wanted to hear good fiddle playing, and it's you really have to dedicate yourself to. Uh, you know, getting tone where you could pick up a mandolin and go plunk, plunk. And it's, you know, it sounded like a pretty, you know, good note. <laughs> Not so on the fiddle. Oh yeah. No, I, I, that's one thing I tell people when they, when they call me for lessons is, and they're starting the fiddle from the beginning. And especially if they've played other instruments first is, uh, you know, uh, what I like to tell them is you can walk over to a piano, strike a key and get a great sound. Yeah. You know, you can walk over to a fiddle, pick up the bow, and get the worst sound in the world. And so it, it takes at least, for most people, it takes at least a year and quite often considerably more time than that to even get a basic controlled sound out of the instrument. Because that bow arm is just, and the way the bow goes across the string is just so, it's a physically and physics-wise a very difficult thing that you've got to have a lot of control to be able to get a good sound. Yeah. I, you know, it's not everybody that I've met there. I've met some people that can do multiple things, but it's so often that you run across a really, really good fiddle player. And that's pretty much all they do. They, yeah. they might fiddle around with some other things. It, it's pretty rare that person like Sam Bush that can just pick one up and lay the other one down. And he really can, he's magnificent on both. Or Mark yeah. O'Connor, or people like that. Uh, I played in a band for many, many years with a guy here in Atlanta by the name of Mike Estes, who, when he started, he was really into uh, the Kenny Baker stuff. And then he got bit by the Texas bug. Hmm. And just, he, he, he turned me on to so much stuff, giving me records and books and he was heading out to Texas all the time, going to these contests. I don't think he ever competed. I think maybe he was too self-conscious of his play, but he's a wonderful player, but introduced me to so many people. 
And I, I'm kind of a closet Texas fiddle guy uh, in terms of what I listen to. I've got, in fact, I have a private Pinterest page that I just post uh, Texas fiddle videos off of YouTube just, just for my own own entertainment. Oh, cool. I'll have to uh, put you on my Texas fiddle tune of the day list. <laughs> I've got a, a, a number of my best friends live in Texas and are really great players of this style. So they've fed me all these great, wonderful uh, um, recordings of mostly jam sessions. Yeah, that's that's and, mostly what Mike was giving me was, hey, I've got this tape. And maybe, you know, I listened to this tape for a long time. And then I would say, Mike, who is this? And he's like, oh, that's Daniel Carwile, or that's uh, so-and-so. And mm -hmm. I remember one time he brought me back a, a hat from, I think it's Hallettsville, Texas. And uh, I, that was as close as I ever really got to the Texas fiddle scene was getting a hat. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that whole thing. It's just it's amazing how, how much overlap there is between that Texas style and swing music and jazz. And I know that's... Uh, even on, on mandolin, that's something you're really into. So uh, talk talk a little bit about that. I've seen some YouTube videos of you playing electric mandolin. Yeah, I uh, I play electric and acoustic. Um, when uh, it just depends on the ensemble that I get hired in. Uh, if it's a, a straight swing band, which uh, you know I have a, a swing trio, and we'll quite often expand to. Uh, quintet or even six if uh, for dances um but it's acoustic and so i'll play uh i have a 24a2 that just sounds really terrific for that stuff so i play that in there but if i get player if i get hired and i'm with like a piano player a drummer a horn player something like that then i'll play electric because they're usually hiring me basically to be an electric guitar yeah, yeah. in that that sense and so i have a i have a jonathan mann uh, EM5 that I put a Charlie Christian, uh, Lawler Charlie Christian pickup in, and then I play it through a, uh, a vintage 47 uh, Gibson uh, EH185 clone amp, and that sound is so close to Charlie Christian, it's, it's incredible. And that's, you know, I've searched for about 15 years looking for this combination to sound like Charlie Christian. Because <laughs> that, that was always my favorite guitar tone. Even though, I play late, even though I play a lot of 50s and 60s era jazz, it's really my favorite stuff, and bebop. Um, you know, I still always like Christian's sound the best. So that's, that's what I've settled on. And it really, it sounds almost identical to Christian's uh, Mitten Sessions. It's funny to hear you talking about these things. I have to plead total ignorance on most of this stuff. I I never really, I mean, I, I picked up a little bit of jazz, a, a very, very shallow knowledge because my brother was a horn player. And when we were in band, you know, he was sort of into that. He was, he was trying to learn to improvise and he was buying these Jamie Abersole records and this kind of stuff. But I was just bluegrass, bluegrass, bluegrass all the time. And many, many years later, when I started, I, I became a video editor and ultimately director at Watch and Learn for their some of their video instructional material. And they had this jazz guy in there. And we were filming lessons. And I started watching this stuff. Then I would go home. I also was uh, typesetting and setting up the tab and notation for the guy's material. 
or or at least I was editing some stuff to it. I, I think he did it himself at home. But I would take that stuff home and try to see if I could play it because I'd hear him play it while we were filming. And I'd go, man, that is really cool. I'm going to go see if I can figure this out on the mandolin. And some of the things I, you know, I managed to sort out. And I, and I also was, I've always been a big fan of uh, uh, Jethro Burns. Mm-hmm. And I bought his book and bought his records, his record with Tiny Moore and that kind of stuff. So I've listened to stuff, but I'm pretty much a jazz ignoramus, you might say. Well, the the, the jazz stuff is really fun. I've always viewed, uh, uh, looking back at the, the Texan stuff, I've always viewed Benny Thomason as just kind of a folk version of Charlie Parker. I mean, both of them huh. basically invented this whole genre that that really expanded the whole idea of what their instrument and what this music was yeah then he took all these simple tunes and added all these parts to them and just had this incredibly wonderful melodic sense and so i think that's why i was drawn to him so much and then i was drawn to people like parker like west montgomery and and uh clifford brown because to me, they had the same kind of melodic sense. It was just in a different music. And of course, because there's much more harmonically going on in the jazz things, they used the music in different ways. But it's like, wow, there's, they could have easily been siblings, all those guys. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember who I was talking to. It was, uh, I can't remember in a, in a previous episode, I was talking to somebody about um mike this friend of mine got really into the texas thing he came back from a contest or something one time and gave me a book called guitar playing doesn't have to be boring and i i'm thumbing through it and it was had all these uh you know like all these crazy chord progressions for tunes that i thought i knew already and i think what i mentioned in the in the episode was you know, at that point, I thought Sally Gooden had two chords. And I look at this thing, and I'm like, I don't even know how to play these chords. You know, I'm going to have to figure this stuff out. It was really cool. And that whole thing of having a tenor guitar, a lot of times Mike always said, you know, the perfect thing is to be there with your fiddle and have a guitar on one side and a tenor guitar on the other, and that's it. And Oh, that that is such a great trio. Um and it's because they're all three in different voice ranges. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the tenor guitar, for people that don't know, is basically a mandola tuning. So you're a fifth lower than the fiddle, and you're still in between the fiddle and the guitar. So, yeah, if, if a guitar is playing basically root position things, you know, some moving around the neck, but a lot of root position things... And then the fiddle is playing. You just on the tenor guitar. You just follow the fiddle player around. Yeah, especially if you know how they play and you know what their variations are. It's it's amazing. You can just follow them along. And and when you listen to Benny and Jerry Thomason, Jerry is just following Benny through all those variations with his chord voicings, and it is just so cool. Yeah, that I, I remember now. It was Scott Tishner I was talking to about that. And he said he had learned a bunch of those progressions. And he, I think he plays a little bit of tenor guitar, too. I, I am now, I was so ignorant of it, you would, I would, if I watch a video now of, of Texas-style fiddling going on, I'm always counting tuners on the peg head to yeah. see, is that a tenor over there or is that a regular six-string? Yeah. 
<laughs> a pretty funny story I have is uh, a couple friends of mine from up here go to Texas and they, they play and there's a, a, an accompanist division um, in a number of Texas fiddle contests where they turn the mic off on the fiddle player. You choose your fiddle player and you go up there and they just have the, the mic on the guitar. Well, most of them are, you know, for six string guitar. So these two tenor players just got two little uh, <laughs> uh, Velcro things or, or it just Velcroed on two additional what looked like tuners from a distance. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so they wouldn't just get disqualified. <laughs> that is so funny. Well, I, yeah. I noticed uh, as I was uh, digging around your website and stuff, and of course I've been running into you for a long time. People like you and I just keep popping up over and over and over. And I, I see your stuff come up on Manlin Cafe and, you know, I've, I'm always seeing who's doing what and stuff. And, and I got over there and was looking through some of your eBooks and the first thing I ran across is Benny Thomason fiddle transcriptions. And I know what a labor that can be back about 10 years ago. I, I, I had a student and we were, we kind of got beyond mandolin lessons and stuff. And, and we're just kind of playing and, he was really, I had uh, played for him the Skaggs and Rice record. And that pretty much blew him away. So we, we started getting together working on trying to sing those duets and just see how many of those tunes we could learn. And I started transcribing. I thought, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write out every single note that Ricky Skaggs played on this classic album. And it took a tremendous amount of time of backing up, replaying, backing up, replaying, backing up, replaying, trying to get it just exactly right. I never really finished the thing. I, I think I got about three quarters of the way through it. One of the things I came away with, aside from the, to me, transcribing, just the act of doing it is so helpful for a musician because you really, really, really are forced to listen to what is going on. And you got to sort it out and figure out, well, what do you think they're doing? How do you think they're fingering that and so on? But what I came away with, it wasn't really to learn what he was doing. What I came away with is like, oh, my God, I didn't realize how much I've been influenced by Ricky Skaggs playing because I'd be looking along there and I'm like, I've played that lick for years. And I guess it's listening to all that Boone Creek and all that stuff. I, I realize in some some cases I was transcribing my own playing, you know, but uh, oh. your, your stuff is amazing. And I know the time that goes into it. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of your eBooks. I have, I think right now I have either 13 or 14. Um, and I have three books of Texas style stuff, the one of Benny and then two others of various other fiddlers. Um, I have, uh, I think two fiddle tune collection books that are that I arranged for both fiddle and mandolin. If I was going to do it again, I'd have written them as different books for the fiddle and different for the mandolin because there's some kind of things that I kind of had to to put them in the same book for both instruments. I had to make little compromises that if I was to do it again, I wouldn't do. I would just put them as different books and right. do the same tunes and do the way. <clears throat> I would do it on the fiddle on one and the way I would do it on mandolin on the other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're still the basic collections of the tunes. So if you 
already play and have decent knowledge of how fiddle music goes, you can, you know, definitely tweak those around. Um, and then I have several jazz uh, books, mostly of uh, the bebop and 1950s era jazz, um, but just some just in general jazz uh, things, uh, you know, improvising techniques that that is different in jazz than in, in, in other musics and things. And definitely I have a jazz chord book that starts from very early and goes through about the mid sixties of how, especially piano and guitar players played the chords. Is that the they one did, called jazz courting for mandolin? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the reason that I chose to do it that particular way well, one of the things, when I started playing jazz, I didn't really have any heroes of that. So um, my heroes were all guitar and piano players. And because especially piano is the main chording instrument through the history of jazz, I just started transcribing a whole bunch of piano comping and stuff and then seeing if I could figure out how to put it on the mandolin. Yeah, yeah. And so that was about a that was about a 10 year period that that ended up and pretty much everything I know is in that book. It's, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. That's and, inter and, uh, interesting. And then I did one other book on uh chord melody playing that uh that the players from the the 50s and 60s, the piano players from the 50s and 60s and especially a guitar player like Wes Montgomery, who's my big hero in that music. Um played what are called drop two voicings i i and was about to ask you what in the world is a drop two chord well if you would uh if you would think on a piano how you would play a six chord root three five and six if you drop the second from the bottom voicing which in that uh, uh voicing would be the third an octave lower uh-huh that's called, that's what jazz arrangers that write for either four voices, four, four instruments, or four singers. The, when that original voicing root three, five, six together is called four note close, that jazz mm -hmm. uh, people call it. And if you drop the second from the bottom voice an octave, they call that drop two. Okay, so, so it's not the drop, second. It is, in, in this case, the third. Well, it's it depends the on the chord, but voice, it's the... It's the second voice from the bottom. Okay, okay. That they drop. And what I found is in these drop two voicings, for the four string voicings, they fit on guitar really nice. They spread out on piano just a little bit because now you're not having four notes so close together, and they really do sound a little better. And this is what they play when they play these chord melody things. So that gets them more in the two hands, right? Yes. Are they doing the lower two of the left and the upper two of the right? I think they're doing the, the upper three with the right and the one in the left. Now, piano players as well will add other things in the left hand quite often. Yeah, it's so natural um, to want to put that root on the left hand when I sit yeah. down on a piano anyway. So yeah. this, is, this is interesting. I may have to... Get me a copy of that. Up, uh, I'm looking at these this list of titles. You got all kind of stuff. Obviously, you're kind of like me in that you never stop. It's are you, what are you churning out right now that we're going to see next year? 
You know, I haven't written anything. This is probably the longest I've gone since I've I've written been writing instruction books. I I don't really have anything in mind right now. A lot of times what I'm writing at that time is what I'm learning at that time and really really digging into and working on. Yeah, yeah. And uh in my own practicing, whenever I get a chance to practice, I'm practicing this drop two stuff because I want to be able to fluidly solo, not work out melody arrangements. I want to be able to solo like these great players can. And so that's what I've been working on the most. And I view I'm about probably a third of the way there after about five years of doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I'm never going to get there, of course. None of us ever arrive where we think we should arrive to. Isn't that but, the truth? Uh, that, yeah. That's but, an episode all on its own right there. Yeah. But it's incredibly fun, and probably a good one-third of the jazz tunes I play, I can play comfortable chord solos on. You know, I can play a two- or three-chorus chord solo on, you know, it's just an improvised chord solo. And, you know... Well, Two years ago, I'd really struggle to put even three or four chords together. So it's uh, it's definitely coming along. I kind of hate to let this little uh, thing out of the bag, and I, I may edit this out, but um, I have a, a old friend of mine that took lessons from Tiny Moore uh, many years ago when he was out mm-hmm. there. He was on the staff for Mandolin World News, and while he was out in California, he was taking lessons from Tiny and he tape recorded all of his lessons and wow. he has all that stuff and he spent a little time transcribing it and not too long ago he sent me some of this stuff and i've just been listening to it and it is just mind blowing but i look at well i don't know if i would live long enough to transcribe all this stuff i mean i'd have to live to be 100 so i might have to enlist you to help me sort some of this out cuz it's just pure gold Oh, I'd love to do that. Actually, Tiny used to come to Weezer in the uh, in the 80s, and I got to know him reasonably well. Uh, I was about the only other mandolin player playing any kind of swing stuff at that time, so I'd go over and we'd, we'd sit and play for quite a long time. Yeah, so, you know, he'd, he'd let me play the, the Bigsby and uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff, and it was really cool. You and may already action. know all these tunes. I'm, I suspect I, he was playing jazz standards in these lessons, but he was riffing on them too. I mean, he was just improvising, and I guess the lesson sort of went like, "Here, I'm going to play, and you hit record." And I don't know, you know how how they actually went, but that's what's on tape. Yeah, yeah. Now he was he was wonderful. He was this really cool. I've always viewed Tiny's playing as this really cool cross, kind of between Charlie Christian and. He had he didn't have a huge amount of bebop in his playing, but he had enough in there that it was it was extremely cool uh, what he would do. And so uh, I learned um, most of the Bob Wills things that he recorded. Um, I learned both his parts in the Western Swing Band because I was in a Western Swing Band at the time where you know I was the main soloist, and so we ended up doing a lot of those. Uh, Tiny Moore and uh, and uh, Vance Terry uh, things with uh, Billy Jack Wills. One of the um, things that it's going to come out of this episode is me included and probably a lot of the listeners because 
you know, I, I consider myself pretty much a bluegrass guy. I'm going to be having to hit Google on like every other name that you have dropped because I'm like, now who is that? Who who's he talking about there? <laughs> it's it's interesting how much stuff you're talking about that is just out of my realm completely. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I mean, it's it's just like anything else, you know, when you get into a really different music style, there's all these different names and, and things like that. And, and uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to go back to one thing you talked about, about doing transcribing. Yeah, okay. I, I've always thought it's the absolute best thing that a serious player that really wants to learn a music style could do. Um, there's a, a, a jazz teacher saying that I use with all my students, regardless of what instrument it is and style they're playing. Quite often, if if they have any kind of seriousness about really getting good, and that's the answers to all questions are on the recordings. Yeah, it's it, I've said little similar things, and Mike Marshall hinted around uh, to when he first went to a bluegrass festival and came home with a stack of records, and he just it just almost in passing said, "I went home and I started transcribing all the solos of Jimmy Goodrow and blah blah blah." And you are so right. I mean it it forces a type of concentration that you don't get by listening. I, I've thought about doing an episode, you know, comparing listening with hearing and, and what you're talking about is active, real listening. Yeah. I'm a big believer of you cannot play anything. You do not hear every single note in full detail in your mind. And what a lot of people say is, oh, yeah, I listen to this, I listen to that, but they, they're they listening to it on a casual level, and the real nuts and bolts of the style is not sticking in their mind. So the, the real nuts and bolts of the style doesn't stick in your mind until you actually sit down and figure out every single note that's there. Yeah. Because it's only then that you can really hear stuff like that. Yeah, and I think, um, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but... Um, when I've been transcribing for me, my goal has never been, it may seem like on the surface that I'm trying to figure out every note so that I can play them, but I always find that the end result is not really, I'm not trying to duplicate it. I, it just, it seems like you just get an understanding more of what's going on and how, how this is taking place. And then, then you sort of make it into your own thing rather than. You know, I mean, if somebody wants to hear Ricky Skaggs play, it'd be a lot easier just to go listen to Ricky than to listen to me try to figure it out and then play it, you know? Yeah, and that's always going to happen. But I think that there, if you don't mind taking the time, and this is something I've done. I mean, I've transcribed literally thousands of things over the years. Um, you know, when you were talking about that Skaggs and Rice record, I did learn everything that Ricky played on there no. <laughs> at that time. and. Sam Bush was my big hero for the longest time, and literally everything he recorded up to, like, 1988 that I could get my hands on, I learned everything off of all those records, too. Yeah, yeah I've noticed there are certain certain people, maybe it comes just with practice, that get better and better and better at transcribing. I can't remember the name of the guy. I think he passed away a few years ago. That He had this book of mandolin transcriptions, and it was just like... Hot oh, solos was, from that was everybody. Dave, Dave Peters. That's right, and yeah. and I mean the amount you you think that's just 
an immense task, but I think probably as a person works with doing it, you get a lot better at it. I know I've gotten better at it in what little bit of transcribing I've done. Oh yeah. It's like, it's a skill like anything else, Brad. If you, if you transcribe a lot, you'll get to where you could do it really fast. Like now, you know, for the longest time I would slow everything down to half speed and stuff. Now I just do everything at full speed. Yeah. And very rarely do I have to isolate something, you know, if it's somebody who I've never transcribed anything before, then sometimes I'll have to isolate them. But if it's somebody I've even done a couple of theirs, um, almost always I just get everything at full speed. Well, Pete, here is your next book title. Transcribing, How It Benefits You and How to Do It by Pete Martin. Mm. Well, you should do that. I guess I could. <laughs> hey, um, before we wrap up here, I want to I want to talk just for a second about your... your um, yeah, I I think it's kind of interesting the way you you do your books, and that is, hey, download it, and if you like it, uh, you know, if you like the book, send me the money. And I remember this is going way on back. I was a graphic artist and a printer and stuff, and it, at at some point I got to fooling around with designing fonts, and I designed a a Macintosh. It was probably a, a Postscript font of. Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I drew these, every character and I made this font and back in those days I was on AOL and you could put up files and, you know, share it with the world and this kind of thing. And I, I put this, I did it like, kind of like you are, shareware was the big mm-hmm. thing back then. And I put a little readme file in there and I said, if you like this, if you like this font, send me something. And I, I put a list of things that somebody could send me. I said, you don't have to send me money. You can just send me like, um, send me an arrowhead from the local <laughs> area or send me something. Just let me know that you like the font. And it was, it was over about a five year period that font got downloaded something like 12,000 times. And I got one letter in the mail from a little girl who was about nine years old telling me how much she liked the font and she included like i don't know a, a seashell she found at the beach or something and it, oh, it was cool. the cutest thing ever but but i that kind of burned me on the idea of the whole shareware thing but i guess it works for you me i'm one of these guys that uh you know just pay me up front and then hit download and you can have it <laughs> of course i give away a bunch of free stuff too but i wonder what the ratio of downloaders to uh, those who pay is i'm yeah. i'm sure you know Oh, no, I actually have no idea. It would probably depress you to know, Pete. Well, you know, but uh, actually, for for a number of years, I just would sell printed copies. Yeah, I and, did too. And it's just about the same, actually. It's, yeah. uh, it's you know, the, the things that I do are so, they're so specialized that there's never going to be a lot of people that do it. Right. And one of the things I found in this, in this music is most people are very appreciative of, of getting any kind of tips that they can. So, you know, there's a pretty decent percentage, I think, that are paying me. Yeah. It, um, I was talking to my wife. She's always the one who straightens me out when I, when I get a little bit off tilt, you know, she'll pull me back to reality sometimes. And we were talking about my site and the things that I do and the podcast and all this stuff. And, and I was sort of debating in my mind, you know, well, you know, when I, if I go this interviewing route, you know, should I avoid people who are, who are selling things that, you know, kind of like, 
that person and I are both kind of peddling the same wares, you might say. And, and after listening to her, and, and I guess I thought this a little bit, I thought, you know, when I was coming up playing, I had books from everybody. I had mm-hmm. books, DVDs. I mean, I just the the amount of instructional material that I've carted around as I've moved several times over the years, it's massive. I've got a little input from everybody, and so I I came away thinking there is no harm in that whatsoever. You know, if somebody wants to buy my mandolin video and download your books and go over, there's a guy that I see pop up on Mandolin Cafe that has developed these massive massively complex intricate charts their fingerboard charts also very fascinating stuff the guy puts up there graphically they're beautiful and then you've got you got homespun videos you got the bill monroe i mean there's so much stuff and i really just think that people should just explore everything and find what works for them and so anyway that's that's why part of what i'm doing here is promoting other people's stuff like your stuff well, I very much appreciate it. And and you're exactly right. We all steal what we like from whichever source we find it. Yeah, and, and I I don't even, you know, I think I said in a, in a past episode that, you know, most of what I teach, I'm sure I'm absolutely positive I learned from someone else. I don't know that I could, you know, footnote it and reference it. But everybody's that way. I'm sure, you know, Beethoven learned from Bach. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you all learn from from what you've heard, and you just filter it through your own ideas. Yeah, I think the beauty, too, of, of a lot of, there's there's such a almost a glut of instructional material now, is that you can find people that kind of speak your lingo, and that are, sure. you know, that you can relate to, and like, one of the things I, I was uh, telling my wife about your joke, um, I don't remember which video it was, but I, I, I look at everybody's stuff, you know. And I I don't know if it was ergonomics or one of your YouTube videos, and you just you had this dry sense of humor, and you just looked at the camera, and you said, but before we get started, a little joke. What do you call five jackrabbits standing in a row or falling backwards or something like that? And you took off your hat, and you said, a receding hairline. And I, I just, I, you should have edited in, a, you know, a rim shot or something, but uh, I thought, I like me, this I'd guy. Had one, if I'd have had one handy, I'd have done it. <laughs> I, I can appreciate people with a real dry sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, I, I've, I've had several friends of mine say, you know, your instruction stuff is great, but you're really funny in person and you're not funny in these videos at all. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was pretty funny. I mean, it's it's funny in that kind of funny, funny odd. Thing. It, it's uh, like yeah. uh, you know because you don't have an audience sitting there and there's nobody chuckling in the background. But that that's the kind of jokes that I just love. I mean, but I I've become a little. Um, I think my wife looks at me and my son sometimes and thinks we're the same age because he's about to turn nine, and sometimes we'll be just cutting up and. We've been watching these uh, Ernest Goes to Camp and all, all that Ernest P. Worrell stuff lately. And just she'll come home and he and I have got a video in just laughing at all this crazy stuff. I feel like I'm a kid again. And she just looks at us like, oh, my God, they're yeah. both nine years old. <laughs> yeah. 
I can't tell you how many of my kids' students I've turned on to Bugs Bunny and Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> and man, they're appreciative of it. It's really cool. Pete, thanks a lot. And uh, um, let's do this again sometime. That sounds good, Brad. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Pete. He's a, he's, you know, he, he's one of those kind of guys that um, he's not too overt with his humor. You know, he's the kind of guy that I'll bet you have to kind of hang around a while before you begin to get on to <laughs> the way his mind works and, and the uh, sense of humor that he has. Anyway, I enjoyed talking to Pete, and I hope you enjoyed listening to him. Remember to go over to grasstalkradio.com. Just scoot on down, thumb scroll your way down to the Pete Martin interview. And I've got links. And by the way, this this music that we're going out with is Pete playing a little bit of Cotton Patch Rag. And I hope you enjoy that. And as always, I have to get my one little plug in for me. Uh, You know, hop over to my site, BradleyLaird.com, and scope out all the free stuff and all all of my eBooks and various creations. And final thing, I always ask this. I'm, sometimes I wonder why I do this because I don't know that it, I, I suppose it does help. iTunes is still the number one podcast directory. So if you go over to iTunes and you were to search for the word bluegrass, you're going to get albums, you're going to get single songs, you're going to get apps, and then you're going to see podcasts. And there are quite a few bluegrass podcasts. I thought it was funny. I, I was searching, went over and did exactly that, search for bluegrass to see, you know, how I came up. And I'm three rows down or so. And I, I click on it, and it says um, at the bottom, like other podcasts, similar podcasts. <laughs> and there was one called Sasquatch Chronicles. I'm like, no, wait a minute. What is Bigfoot? have to do with blue well anyway their uh their system may not be completely perfected but i do appreciate it if regardless of where you're listening if you're listening on my own site through the little embedded podbean thing or if you're listening on podbean or stitcher or just subscribe on itunes that is by far the easiest way to keep the episodes coming your way but if you go to itunes and I think you have to be signed in with your iTunes account name. You know, I sure do like those five-star ratings. I think that and the download count probably is what pushes you closer to the top of the list. And if I get up there a little higher, people will see it, and, you know, we can bring some more good folks into the bluegrass realm. So I appreciate you going over there and doing that. And hope everybody had fun today. Got more fun stuff coming up. So... Y'all stick around, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.